Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Oliver Berkman. He's a writer for The Guardian based in Brooklyn, New York. His, his new book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, explores the upsides of ne- negativity, uncertainty, failure, and imperfection. Each week, he writes about social psychology, self-help culture, and the science of happiness. Oliver, thanks so much for being part of the show. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So, Oliver, when I saw the title of your book, I just had to download it, <laughs> Happiness for People Who can't, can't Stand Positive Thinking. How did you get interested in this topic? Well, I had been <clears throat> writing a column for The Guardian for a little while. I still write it today. The idea of which was to take a sort of skeptical, but hopefully not cynical look at um, self-help culture, science of happiness, all these topics that you mentioned. Um, Because I think, you know, there's a lot of really interesting research out there, but there's also an awful lot of uh, charlatanism and nonsense and people wanting to, um, you know, sell you uh, multiple thousand dollar uh, seminar series that don't work or whatever it might be. And and so I was trying to find this line in between, uh, you know, being skeptical without being cynical. Um, And one One thing that kept recurring as I did this was the realization that, you know, something that united all the approaches that didn't seem to work to me Mm -hmm. were uh, that they were in one way or another positive thinking. They in one way or another were to do with uh, deciding that everything is going to go well, trying to fill your mind with happy thoughts, trying to visualize success, setting very uh, firm goals and then committing to them with all your and, you know, this kind of all these kind of classic ideas. Uh, seemed to not be backed up as far as I could see by the research or by my sort of personal experimentation with them. Whereas this other set of approaches that involve, you know, um, uh, opening towards the experience of failure or insecurity, you know, learning to embrace and use pessimism sometimes or um, everything that I sort of call the negative path to, to happiness in the book could actually be quite uh, effective. So, you know, certainly I spend part of the book uh, mocking the ridiculous extremes of the, of the positive thinking movement because that is enormous fun to do. But I also try to um, look at what I think might might work as an alternative. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning of the book, one of the things that you talk about is this idea of um, setting something in your mind and and like a polar bear, I believe you used the quote, try not to think of a polar bear and you'll see that it's the only thing that comes to your mind. How is is that related to happiness? Well, this is kind of the paradigm uh, example of um, the problem with all sorts of kind of thought, attempts to control our own thoughts, attempts to use willpower to to um, guarantee success or happiness, whatever it is. Um, This is something that, I mean, the the idea is very old. It goes back to Dostoevsky. You know, it's this idea that if you challenge somebody not to think about a polar bear for two minutes, then they will fail, but they won't just fail. They'll fail because they're trying to do it. Um, Most of my life, I go for much more than two minutes without thinking of a polar bear. But as soon as somebody um, tells me not to, uh, it's all that I can think of. And this has been studied, um, the mechanism here, by by a great psychologist who just recently died, unfortunately, called Daniel. 
uh, Wegner at Harvard. And basically the point is, when you are trying to monitor your mind for the presence of polar bear thoughts, just as when you're trying to monitor your mind for negative thoughts because you're trying to think positively, or just as when you're trying to um, monitor your mind for no, to make sure you're not um, thinking about failure or being pessimistic or whatever it might be, that actually brings about the opposite, you know, because you are constantly surveying inside your mind for these um, for these uh, um, lapses from, from what you're trying to achieve. And the more general point, I think, is just that um, often you can try too hard to be happy. You can try and you can be too energetic in your commitment to your goals such that they bring about um, it's precisely that too much effort that brings about the, um, the, the opposite of what you are hoping to achieve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, at first glance, uh, this concept about uh, negative thinking could somehow bring us happiness um, was sounded counterintuitive to me. But when I started thinking about it, for example, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are uh, endurance athletes. And before a race, I'll think of all the negative things that can happen, how I'm going to feel when I start to get fatigued and things like that and how I'm going to deal with it. And that seemed to make more sense as I as I kept listening to your book. Uh, it made more and more intuitive sense. Why is it that we're always told to just look on the bright side? You know, I think it is at first very intuitive that if you want to be successful, you should focus on success. I mean, it doesn't, it, that makes a lot of sense. Of course it does. But it's, um, it, it sort of falls apart when you, um, uh, get into the details. So, for example, sports is fascinating. I mean, there's this kind of long-standing idea that, that you should visualize uh, success in, uh, in, in order to achieve it. What you find when you look at some of the research and talk to people involved is that um, it's one thing to visualize an individual step. You know, it's one thing to visualize getting the perfect golf swing or, uh, you know, adjusting your swimming stroke or something. That, that, I think, can have an awful lot of benefits. But when you are envisaging victory, you know, you're thinking to yourself about uh, being at the finish line and all the adulation you're going to get when uh, when when you get there. This can uh, do a couple of things. I mean, first, I think it can stress you out and uh, and cause you to be sort of paralysed by um, by reminding yourself of the standard that you're trying to meet. And then, secondly, they've done some amazing studies to suggest that certain kinds of visualisation um, can actually reduce your motivation. They, in one experiment, they asked people to they made people thirsty and then they they asked them to visualise um, some of them to visualise drinking a, a, a refreshing glass of water. And the ones who were visualising that actually experienced a reduction in their energy levels as if they were no longer so motivated to achieve the goal in reality because they had um, on some level convinced themselves that they'd achieved it um, uh, you know uh, in their imagination so I think there's a whole host of reasons why that kind of um, relentless focus on the outcome I mean I think we've all had experiences of this I you um, in my case I remember taking my my driving test in uh, the UK and being convinced after about five minutes that I totally screwed it up and then you relax and that's when you manage to do well enough to, to, to pass, you know. So um, there is definitely something to be said for not for not relentlessly focusing on the, on the, the next achievement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you you mentioned a study there about uh, visualizing drinking a glass of water. I found that really interesting. Do you think that someone who visualizes, say, winning a race or achieving a certain time, that 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 could actually be a detriment? I mean, you see athletes at the starting line and they have a very serious face on, not not a type of face that that uh, is happy, and as if they've already gain success so there's i think there's got to be something there yes i mean one has to be careful extrapolating these studies uh Mm -hmm. from from one context to another but from my understanding of the research and of sort of anecdotal uh 
accounts I've heard. You do not, these days at the top of serious sport, get a lot of um, sports psychologists telling you to imagine raising the Wimbledon trophy above your head or, um, or to, you know, you, you may well be visualizing an individual stroke or step or move, uh-huh. but, um, but that is a different kind of, that's a sort of process goal rather than an outcome goal. And I think it makes a, a big difference. Obviously, I was very happy when um, uh, Andy Murray won Wimbledon because I'm, I'm British too, but I was, I was um, sneakingly hoping that maybe um, uh, Djokovic would win because he famously uses um, meditation, which uh, is, is one of the things I write about in the book as a way of sort of actually, I think I would say, uh, detaching a little bit from the goal that he's trying to achieve so that he can focus on, um, on, on the, the tennis uh, in the moment. And, you know, mm-hmm. he didn't quite make it to the top, but he got, uh, got pretty close. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there's anything wrong if someone says, you know, thinking about the negative, that just makes me nervous. I, I like to do positive thinking, and that's what works for me. Do you think there's individual differences here? Uh, undoubtedly, there are individual differences. And one thing I try to be very clear about in the book is that I don't want to commit the reverse fallacy that I'm cu- accusing the positive thinking culture of. I, I don't want to say, you know, you should always be really negative and gloomy. And if you feel optimistic, that's a bad thing. And you need to you need to fix that. I mean, I do think in certain contexts, work contexts and things like that, it can be useful to have a pessimist on your team. I think that um, absolutely has its, has its benefits. But generally speaking, I'm talking about trying to redress what I think is a big imbalance in the way we've come to think about these ideas, these psychological ideas uh, popularly. So it's not that, um, you know, if you really think positive thinking works for you, I would not want to be the person who comes along and says, I know you're wrong. On the other hand, I would uh, caution against all the cognitive biases that go on there. It's very easy um, to maybe remember all the times that you did a certain exercise and, uh, and had success and to forget the times that you did the exercise and, and didn't have success. You know, that's another sort of aspect that runs through the book, this idea of survivor bias, that, that it's very hard to tell what makes you happy or what makes you successful if you only remember the times when something seems to, to work and you, and you forget the times uh, when it doesn't. But, uh, you know, I, I, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with optimism. I think positive thinking is this sort of overly forced attempt to use your will to bring about the outcome that you're, uh, that you're uh, after. Okay. Yeah, you know, something you kind of brought up there in the kind of throughout the book, you, you hint at that some, there might be something wrong with this idea of pursuing happiness just as your only goal. And is that really going to make you happy? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did you find in, in looking at that? Well, it was a difficult thing in writing the book. You know, I spent, um, uh, I was going to say wasted, but maybe it was useful. I spent, you know, sort of weeks and weeks before I began trying to come up with a working definition of, of uh, happiness, given that I was going to argue that, you know, we were going about it the wrong way. I thought a definition would be quite useful. I eventually had to conclude that if, you know, philosophers had failed over the last two millennia to, um, or more to come up with an answer, I probably wasn't going to uh, do it uh, either. Um, and I think, you know, what that, it goes to show that happiness is a very problematic word. It's sort of a placeholder word. We need, we need that word in our language, but I'm not sure it's ever that helpful to think of it as one's goal. Um, I think when you're, when, when you're focused on it, it becomes very easy to imagine that what you mean is a constant state of excitement or uh, a sort of very, very upbeat affect all the time or something like that. And actually, when you look back on your truly happiest times, I think most people would say they are 
times when they've been thoroughly absorbed in an activity. They maybe haven't been conscious at the time of being happy at all. They've been in a state of, you know, flow. Um, and even maybe uh, sometimes almost um, scary or, or perhaps even sad situations, there's a sort of level of aliveness, I think, that you have when you are helping a friend through a crisis or risking serious physical injury doing some uh, physical uh, endeavor. You know, um, we, you would never use that as part of your definition of happiness. And yet looking back, I think often you find that, that it's there. So I think maybe sort of looking at happiness from out of the corner of your eyes, but a useful strategy. Okay. You know, uh, one of the things you write in your book is about stoicism. Um, what led you to look at stoicism? Is that something that you were interested in before writing this book or specifically as you were looking into happiness? Well, I came across a few references here and there and I figured something interesting was going on, but it was very, very superficial until I really dived in for this book and both, you know, read a lot of the original text, but also met a whole bunch of fascinating people who try to live by this philosophy today. And the interesting thing is that it sort of starts from somewhere that is a little similar to positive thinking. It starts by saying, you know, events in the world don't cause you to be distressed. What causes distress is your beliefs uh, about those events. And you find this, you know, it's an amazingly sort of clear insight that you find going back to um, uh, Marcus Aurelius and all these uh, these ancient um, philosophers. And, and, and yet the positive thinker then says, well, you've got to make sure those beliefs are always good. Whereas I think all the Stoics uh, want to say at this point is, you know, it's a good reminder that you can sort of achieve a certain kind of tranquility, a certain kind of calm by just remembering that those beliefs are what are causing your distress, that actually you tend to exaggerate and catastrophize, that actually if you're thinking clearly in detail uh, how badly things could go, a wonderful Stoic technique they call premeditation of evils, you know, negative visualization, actually thinking through, as you say, um, some of the worst case scenarios can actually be a path to a much more sustainable form of calmness than constantly trying to persuade yourself uh, that everything's going to work out just fine. And when you look at some of the lives of the original Stoics, you know, it's no surprise that they ended up concluding that life doesn't always work out fine. So um, you better have some uh, some beliefs ready for when that happens instead of trying to persuade yourself that that's what's going to happen. One of the tips you mentioned in the book, I don't know if it's a tip, but exercises was to help you visualize or understand what a negative outcome could be like was to run up and ask someone on the street, uh, excuse me, I just got out of the lunatic asylum. Can you please tell me what year it is? <laughs> this was a strategy. I'm not sure I recommend this specific one, but this came from Albert Ellis, who was a, a psychotherapist who was very influenced by stoicism. And he said, you know, as long as it's not going to get you arrested or killed or something like that, you know, often the best way to deal with something you're anxious about is to bring about the thing that you're anxious about. So if you're scared of embarrassment, um, you know, walk up to someone and ask something embarrassing and you will see that uh, it's not, not that it's fun, but that all the, the sort of level of panic that you were regarding it with um, was very, very uh, disproportionate. I did. I actually did another exercise that he recommended where I um, spoke out loud the name of sub, names of subway trains to, uh, stations while while riding on the subway in, in London, which was uh, pretty excruciating, but, <laughs> but but you know much less terrifying than I thought it would be in advance, which is really really the point. Okay. You know, a, a lot of people I think are, are might just find this very counterintuitive, and I'm wondering if there's some kind of evolutionary advantage to being more on the optimistic side and not the pessimistic side. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's very, very interesting. I mean, I suspect, given the name of your uh, blog and podcast, that, that I am more of a skeptic about um, uh, very strictly evolutionary and evolutionary psychology arguments than, uh, 
than you might be. I don't know. I'm not, mm. We don't need to get into <laughs> a big set two about that. But I, I mean, just sort of totally in the realm of speculation, I do think that um, there's a sense in which uh, um, positive thinking may act as one of these kind of um, stimuli that, or not stimuli, but you know, one of these phenomena that might have worked better in a in a in a, in a prior uh, context mm-hmm. than uh, than now. That that really, you know, there are degrees of um, uh, complexity to the systems that in which we try to achieve success or, or happiness that, that do not admit of deciding to do something and then deciding it's going to work and then you do it. But I have to say, now that I'm talking about this in this purely speculative mode, because I've never really thought about the question in too much detail before, um, I think that actually the sort of positive thinking idea is incredibly new. I mean, not only is it not on an evolutionary time scale, it's like 150 years old. It's so, so recent. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that, um, you know, that kind of desperate effort to, to um, strain in the direction of optimism is um, would have been extremely unhelpful uh, on a sort of evolutionary uh, time scale to assume that if you decide that everything's going to be fine, then you're not going to be, uh, you know, attacked by a predator. That would seem to me to be a disaster and really a luxury that could only come about in sort of, you know, very comfortable um, modern uh, environments. So, um, again, I think maybe there's a distinction here between optimism and positive thinking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm making this stuff up as I go. I should clarify that the stuff as far as uh, evolutionary relevance goes I, I did not um, focus too hard on uh, on that part of, uh, of, the, of the question yeah no that's interesting that, that you say that because um, if you're in a primitive environment and, and you and you hear a noise and you think oh it's it's nothing everything's going to be fine um, but in fact it might be a predator uh, the person who reacts more with the negative thinking will maybe they'll get up and run and, and not get eaten by the predator Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and really, it's not even negative thinking. It's more almost to do with just being open to the possibility of negativity. So it's to do with it's to do with, um, you know, looking at life. I mean, pick a different example in the long historical timescale. The Stoics that, you know, one of the famous Stoics was born a slave. Another famous Stoic had, was ordered to kill himself by committing ritual suicide. You know, life was not a happy thing. And it would be very, very perverse to adopt a, a philosophy of happiness that said, as long as you assume everything's going to be fine. Um, it will. I think that is an incredibly um, modern indulgence. And actually, the way that the environment, the economy, everything is going now, it's probably an indulgence uh, we now can't afford either. Yeah. So, Oliver, are you a natural optimist or natural pessimist, I'm guessing? <laughs> I think I'm probably a natural slight pessimist. I'm not, I really am not, um, as I occasionally have to try to persuade people after this title of the book came out, you know, a terrible, terrible um, uh, uh, grouch. What I, what I think I am is somebody who responds to things like anxiety or challenge or stress, not by saying, I'm going to make sure that, that I'm convinced this can go well, but, but rather by saying, okay, what's the actual worst thing uh, that could happen here? If the answer to that question is, well, it'll be bad but not that bad, then do the thing. You know, that's how to take um, exciting risky choices in your life, I think. To, to, um, to be okay with the risk of them going wrong, rather than to convince yourself that there can be no risk. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's a really good tip that you mentioned there is uh, kind of visualizing, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And that's something that I that I use a lot. Um, do you have any other tips for our listeners that you found helpful um, in pursuing happiness or just in, uh, from your research about this book? Well, I have found uh, meditation extraordinarily helpful. I know everyone says that these days, but I want to um, throw my vote behind very simple sort of breath 
breath meditation or mindfulness meditation. Um, there's, you know, the basic instructions are everywhere online. And it's that's really something that, that, you know, just 10 minutes a day, it's not as much as I ought to be doing. But, you know, a little bit does help one sort of step back from being completely enmeshed in, in thoughts. And it enables you then to tolerate uncertainty and uh, insecurity in a way that I think is quite is quite fruitful. Um, the only other thing that I always think is probably one of the best bits of advice is this um, is this insight from various different thinkers that, you know, about motivation, that you don't have to feel like doing something before you do it. Mm. But, um, some, you know, often if you want to, if you need to, you know, do some particular work project or your fitness regime calls for some particular thing and you do not feel like you need to want to do it, positive thinking says, you know, you've got to find a way to pump yourself up into a mood where you really want to do it. Mm. And, um, and these um, counterintuitive approaches say, well, hang on, actually, you can just say, okay, I don't feel like doing it. I'm going to accept that feeling. And at the same time, I'm, I'm going to get up and, you know, put on my running shoes and, 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 uh, and take the action. You don't need to actually set yourself this additional hurdle of not only doing something, but also feeling like doing it at that moment. And certainly if I hadn't learned that, I don't think I'd ever actually got this book finished in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, Oliver, it's been great talking with you today. And I really appreciate you being part of the show. I think the listeners will really enjoy it. So thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much for inviting me. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.